Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out, and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully, in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello, and welcome to the Fire, Be- Fire in the Belly show. Uh, today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by Sam Thiara. Good afternoon, Sam, or good morning to you. I've, I've lost track of times already. It's a good afternoon for where I am in Vancouver, Canada. Well, listen, welcome from Vancouver. It's great to have you on the show, Sam. So tell us, Sam, who are you? What do you do? And well, we now know where you're from. So give us a bit of background. Yeah. So, Pete, I think the best way for me to describe myself is there are five things that guide and direct me in life. Servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and a community do-gooder. As a result of those five core elements, it's given me this foundation to look at what is important to me in life, and not just career, but life and career. And it's provided me a solid base so that I could go forward and help people in life and career. So that makes me a, an educator, a storyteller, a speaker, a mentor and coach, uh, an author, a blogger, uh, you know, a community activator. Anything that I embrace has to embrace those five things. And it just becomes a very organic mix. So when things emerge in my life, I compare it to those five things. And uh, then I just take off because it just resonates. And it makes a lot of sense that that's something I should be doing. No, it, makes, it does make a lot of sense. But I mean, deep down, who are you? Mm-hmm. What is your core you? The core of me is I've been given a gift. And my gift is the purpose that I have, which is to storytell, story share, and to realize and listen to people and help them accomplish and go down a pathway that is authentic and true to them. There's a lot of noise around. My, what I do is I try to activate the voice within people so that they can activate that voice to be louder than the noise around. And it just brings me so much enjoyment and pleasure to watch people go down a pathway that is authentic to them. I don't tell them which way to go, but through the conversations, they start realizing their journey and their pathway. And it's about three to eight conversations a week. In fact, later on today, I've got another one, but it's been about 5,000 conversations over the last 20 years that I've been able to build relationships with people, help them in their journey. And uh, Pete, you know, the most amazing thing, and I use, uh, Sir Isaac Newton's quote, I've been able to see far because I've stood on the shoulder of giants because I've been present on people's journeys. I am surrounded by greatness. And it's just such a pleasure and a place in my life that I could never even even imagined that I'd be here today, uh, but in the presence of greatness with so many of these individuals. That's, I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, I love it that you called it a gift. Um, how would you describe that? I mean, is that is that almost a... Do you see yourself as a facilitator, listener, mentor? I mean, what what's your core strengths that you would put on your CV yeah. per se? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't put this one on my CV, but I, I say I'm a difficult monk because I think people initially, when they hear about me or that uh, this is what I do, they come to me, but they're seeking the answers to life. They think that I'm this orange saffron bearded man. Now I'm bearded and I'm, you know, a bit gray here, but uh, I'm not in an orange saffron robe sitting on top of a mountain. And, you know, somebody comes up and says, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what job I should do. What do you think? Or I've even had people say, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur. What business should I start? And I'm, well, if I knew which business, wouldn't I be doing that now? I'm the difficult monk because I think the questions that uh, you're, I ask a lot of questions because the person actually is the inner monk. Like the person who approaches me they have the answers within them. And my job is just to unlock it by being asking questions, sharing stories. So there's a lot of reflection, introspection, conversation, and it's about asking them what matters to them in life and helping them seek out what I call purpose. So there are times I'm a mentor, sometimes I'm a coach. Mentorship uh, and coaching are two different areas. Coaching is a lot of questions. If somebody has no idea the direction to go, then coaching is is the way to go because then you're just trying to peel away that onion. And once they have a, a better idea and a firm idea of the direction they want to go, then it becomes mentorship and saying, well, let me connect you to this person or have you considered this option? And then we, we sort of go back and forth in that regard. But a lot of the times the conversations that I have with people starts with, what would you like to talk about today? And sometimes it's about career, sometimes it's about academics, life, relationships, but it just is an opportunity to be a listener and to share and to just guide and support. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what, what makes a good listener there, Sam? Mm -hmm. A good listener is someone that is an active listener. We can hear people but are you really listening to what's being said? And, and I see this often where, you know, I may be an observer in a dialogue and I'm sitting there going, you know, you've got a perspective and you're pushing your perspective as a truth, but the other person uh, has a different perspective and they're just going back and forth, back and forth. But do you take the time to listen? And listening is where you are silent, you absorb, you uh, don't make judgments and you're not waiting to come back with something else. Try to be open in the dialogue and open in the conversation. Uh, and, you know, there are times where in the way, I guess it's, it's like we were given two ears and one mouth so that the ratio should be two to one where maybe we should be listening more. And I think a lot of the, the problems that we have in our lives, uh, communities, and maybe even the world, if people just listened, shared more, and, uh, you know, just became more understanding, I think is what uh, what we need. No, indeed, it's, it's very powerful. And it's interesting how you split the differentiation between listening and hearing, mm -hmm. you know, sort of depth of understanding, if I've understood that correctly, I suppose, yes. in what you said. Yes, totally. Yeah. A bit of a random one, but do, do people get you generally, Sam? Yes, uh, I think the reason I say people get me is uh, uh, oftentimes what I say is the things I speak about, people would be like, wow, that's that's really important. And 
you know, it's cutting edge. And I'm like, actually, it's common sense. Like, in other words, when I talked about those five core elements and how people need to lay a foundation, mm-hmm. you know, people think that that's, that's amazing. And then I'm, but I'm thinking to myself, but to really understand ourselves, shouldn't we have a foundation to work from that we can compare against? So oftentimes a lot of it is common sense, but it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, people are, are oblivious to it and all, but I just think that what it does is when you break it down, and this is where storytelling is so important because storytelling is a mechanism that allows you to relate to people and people can relate back to you because storytelling is tapping into experiences and tapping into what we have as what I call mental models of the world around us. And it allows people to appreciate and understand the story and how it may relate to them. The way I tell stories, people may have a different perspective or an idea, but equally at the same time, what it does is it opens up an avenue because it's a, it opens up a conversation and we layer stories upon stories upon stories because, and this is where part of also what I say is the word storytelling is great. And one of the five things I said was story sharing, not storytelling, because instead of telling is one directional story sharing is we have a conversation and then I'll say something or you'll say something and then it'll remind me something. And I build upon that and you build upon that. And next thing you know, this hour and a half long conversation has just gone by and you're like, where did the time go? It's, so it is that interaction, right? So it's actually yeah. feeding. So it's a it's it's a two way communication as opposed to I'm going to recite a load of stuff and you're going to hopefully listen. <laughs> it's yes. like, whereas opposed as you said, it's it's the sharing part that actually gives it the power. If I've understood that, yes, yep, yeah, totally. Sharing so, is important. Is the truth is the truth important in in storytelling? I feel it is because. What storytelling or story sharing does is it's a reflection of yourself. Now, I mean, it depends if you're using an example and it's and you don't have that personal example and it's fictional. Okay, there's no truth in the fact that it happened to you, Mm. but there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are relating it to an example, but I think part of what's really important when you are sharing is establishing and building a level of trust. So you know, and the more that a person trusts you, the more and deeper and engaging the conversation can become versus really at the surface level. So trust is really important to, to establish. And the conversation is what guides us. And when people feel comfortable, they're willing to open up. And what's interesting is, you know, that level of trust is, 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 a, is really interesting because I've had conversations with people where I've met them the first time. And within 30 minutes, they're they're sharing deep, intimate parts of their life with me after 30 minutes of this conversation. And I'll ask them, I said, you know, I'm I'm actually really surprised that you were willing to share this about yourself with me. And they said, actually, Sam, you, you pulled me in and I felt very comfortable. And the way that you have created that environment, I felt very safe that way. And it just again, reinforces or or, uh, explains to me that maybe what I'm doing is helping people because they're able to share. And whatever we talk about, confidential, it's all stays within that little bubble, never to be shared with other people because I really do respect uh, that uh, that place that we've gone to have a conversation. Well, 
where does the power come in that, if that makes sense? And not, not in the egotistical power, but I suppose, is it just the power in the connection or is it actually, it's, it's a reflection in yourself and the learnings for yourself? Do, do, does that make sense? Well, I think what you're saying is where's the, the power in the conversation, if I'm, if I'm hearing it correctly, yeah, is that yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the fact is that uh, people are hungry for it. I mean, we have such a fast life. I mean, we have our devices and the thing with our devices is the fact that they connect us, but they actually keep us further apart. And I think people are really hungry for just even a conversation. Um, virtually can can work, but I'm getting a lot of people who are just dropping me a note saying, Sam, I need to meet up with you to have a cup of tea, to actually be present um, or lunch, or I think I've just booked three teas, lunches, and dinners in a, in a very short time because people are, are saying, you know, I really just want to be in that company. I think the virtual piece works, but equally at the same time, uh, that human connection, I think, is, is really critical. And I think it becomes this place where people know, you know what, this person is going to be listening to what we share, uh, you know, they feel very comfortable. And I think that that's created in that space uh, that you that you have. But I think that personal connection is what people are really hungry for, especially with the pandemic and the lockdowns and uh, trying to get through this. People are really hungry for that human connection. And I think they're just looking forward to having that ease up so that we can actually resume and have these conversations again. And for yourself, I mean, is, is that is that a, I mean, is that a flow state for you when you're connecting with others, or what what would be your sort of your optimum um, sort of flow state, if you like, in the environment in, in which you would work? Yeah, uh, you know, I do feel like it, that's one of the places where I do find flow is in conversation, and uh, the surprising piece also is how people will say, "How do I get into a conversation?" Like they have to go to an event, and uh, I always say I don't like the word networking. I like the word relationship building. Networking to me is tr- transactional. Relationship building is transformational, and. Uh, you know, the flow happens because what I try to do is get people to feel at ease in a conversation. And it may be an, a simple, easy question I start out with to say, you know, uh, how, you know, uh, we, if we meet somewhere for coffee or tea and all that, it'd be like, so tell me, how's your day going? And simple as that. And then they start telling me a little bit and then I'll build onto it and they'll build onto it. But the interesting part about this is, you know, I do about three to eight conversations on average per week. And interesting thing is people say, look, are you ever feeling that it's too much? And I said, actually, what I worry about is not if it's too much. I worry about the day people don't want to be in my company or, you know, want to talk. And I think it was all about a shift. Um, Because I remember a shift with regards to perspectives. Because what I've always found is that uh, it's never a burden. And sometimes people are unloading burden on me, but uh, it's never a burden for me. And the way I look at this is the if I'm speaking to three to eight people, or if I'm teaching my class and there's 120 students, uh, think of myself as a large bucket and a room full of smaller buckets. And if I'm pouring my contents into everybody's bucket, what's happening to my bucket? It's depleting. However, I'm not a bucket. I'm a lit candle 
And when I have a conversation with someone, it's an unlit candle. And when we talk and speak and our wicks emerge or uh, touch, a giant flame emerges and that's that conversation. But once they, we separate and we leave, my flame is no less depleted and it, you've lit somebody up. And really that's the way that I go through life. Now somebody says, yeah, but a candle wears its way down like the wax and all that. And I said, but let's focus on the flame. The flame does not get depleted. And I think that's the way that uh, I focus on it is that I'm a candle, not a bucket. And as a result, it allows me that strength and the power and the energy to have these conversations. And, uh, you know, it just ignites me as well. And in those conversations, I mean, I'm getting, you know, is there in intuition there? Is, I mean, is intuition just a, a learned form of conversation or, you know, mm -hmm. would you describe yourself as intuitive, first of all? Yeah, I can, I can usually, I mean, having done this for so many times, I mean, when someone is sharing with me, you can start seeing either a pattern or a focus or direction. And, you know, not that I'm going to force them to get something out, but, uh, you know, I may ask the question of, uh, you know, so what I'm hearing is maybe, you know, there are some challenges in the workplace, so tell me about those. And then, that, but we've already established a level of trust. And then, so there, the intuition happens, I think, because I've done this so much, uh, so many times, you, you start building this, um, you know, sense about people and you can tell when something's a bit off or, you know, there's something that they want to talk about. And oftentimes maybe there is something that they want to share. And then only by going into the conversation, have we really, you know, started going in that direction. And it, it may not be that they were even going to talk about it, but, you know, it's just guided that way. But the intuition, I think, just happens because I've done this so many times. And it doesn't mean it's 100% accurate and it's a radar where I'm like, you know, you're having marital problems. You and I need to talk. It's, it's more about, you know, having this um, sense and understanding that, look, something's not right uh, about you today. I mean, if you want to talk, by all means, I'm here for you. And you know what, we can talk about whatever you like. And then they were like, you know what, let me share this with you. And I've had some really deep conversations with people who it's even gone to the point where sometimes people have even shared that they, you know, think their life is now over and uh, they've contemplated suicide. And sometimes we have that lengthy conversation and discussion. Um, and sometimes they're happy moments. Sometimes they're sad and sometimes they're very challenging moments, but um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, what you call therapist. I'm, I don't, um, I'm not a person who's a counselor. I actually recommend that if it is something that is that troubling, that they do seek counseling services. I'm not there to replace that, but I'm just there to be a listening ear to help them unburden some of the things that they're carrying. Mm. Yeah. I was going to ask, I mean, in terms of that, um, you know, holding that space because I mean, you, you talked about that sort of holding that space and that, that sort of listening ear. If you like, how how do you hold it in a um, in a healthy space uh, rather than, as you say, spiraling mm -hmm. off into sort of negative patterns or something that's you know in the past maybe, and, and they get onto this sort of repeat mode. You know, yeah. how do you, how do you hold a, a healthy, constructive mm -hmm. space? Yeah, again, I think it's about. Uh, guiding the conversation and uh, steering it and guiding it in a direction that uh, is comfortable for that person. And I remember, uh, I mean, one thing I do is I do a lot of acronyms. And one of the acronyms I, I, I shared at a 
uh, mental health conference was the acronym of STARTS. When someone is maybe going through a challenging time and you're the person who's on the other end of it, uh, you know, STARTS is an important piece. Uh, START stands for, S stands for support. We need to build and create a supportive environment. T, once we have a supportive environment is trust. In other words, once you create a supportive environment, trust can enter and emerge. If someone is going through a challenging time, oftentimes what I've seen is they're so micro-focused on an aspect of their life that they're not appreciating the other things around them. Mm -hmm. So it's about appreciation. And one way to appreciate is through reflection. And I, I'm a person that does a lot of self-reflection, but it's about helping them start reflecting and then appreciating. So that's the R. And then T is conversations, it's talk. So we need to have these conversations. So when you have the support, the trust, the appreciation, the reflection, and the talk, it brings us to a place where now we can maybe start focusing and building some strength into that place. Um, and that's how I sort of look at it. And I try to work in, not directly in, in that sequence and direction, but it provides a bit of a guide for me in the sense of supporting and helping someone. No, that makes sense. And it's, it's a very constructive acronym, as you say, to, to be able to help people to follow. Mm-hmm. Tell me, Sam, what, what does fire in the belly mean to you? Yeah, fire in the belly is, I call it purpose and guiding myself to this purpose in life. And I think we use this word passion too easily and too, um, you know, what we say is find your passion and you will, you know, open up amazing doors. And what I've always told, you know, my class or people is, Passion is an igniter, but passion cannot be sustained. Purpose is the flame itself, but passion needs to ignite that flame. So I, part of what I do is I try to take that passion that they have and try to move it to ignite that purpose that they have. And that's the fire in the belly is that, is that you know, for me, it's, the, it's supporting and helping people to get to the place that I've been able to get. They don't need to be on my journey and pathway, but I want them to experience fulfillment. Uh, I want them to experience purpose. And I remember I wrote a blog post, which you know I share with a lot of my university students because that's an audience that is really lost. And I said, you do realize the first job out of university is what you had to do. So it's had to do, have to do, want to do. The first job out of university or college is going to be had to do. Corporate culture, pay, benefits, none of this will matter. You just need a job to get experience. Eventually, what I see is five, 10 years later, I'm getting a phone call saying, oh, let's grab lunch. And then as we sit for lunch, how's the family? What are projects are you working on? This is what they're asking me. And eventually the conversation starts shifting to, you know, yeah, I've been at that job five years, seven years. It's time for me to move on. So Sam, what do I have to do to get to my want to do? But I'm not sure what my want to do is. So fire in the belly for me is is this piece that I've had that I've been struck by lightning or had this euphoric moment uh, probably when I was about 35 years old that just said, I'm going to leave that standard corporate pathway. It's, it works, but you know what? 
what else is out there? And then I wound up going on a journey and uh, never looked back. And it just, for me, that's the fire in my belly is to be curious and to explore and to realize possibilities and opportunities that uh, I need to embrace, whether it's being an author. I mean, seven years ago, I was never an author. And all of a sudden, I've got two books or blogging and never saw myself as a blogger. as a as an as a speaker educator, I mean, I was told in high school, you're probably not suited for post-secondary education. And now I teach university students. I mean, it's a total shift, and that's because I never listened to the noise. That's quite the transition, really, isn't it? As you say, you're going from, you know, sort of uh, that sort of non-author to author to, you know, sort of actually, it's a, it's a seems to be quite a strong method of communication for you. If that's if that's mm-hmm. a fair statement. Yeah, that's great. It's great to get it out. Talk to me about that thirty-five-year-old that switch. I mean, was was it a wake up and brush the teeth and gone? Got a change, or was there what happened? Yeah. So I was in a so a a standard route. I was in a corporate job, government job, uh, you know, stability, comfort, and all of that stuff. And I remember I was uh, seven and a half, no, six and a half years in a position, and it was a job that I could do. But it really wasn't me. It's like uh, going into a store. I'm a 42 regular suit and I bought a 52 regular. I'm wearing it. I could wear it, but it just doesn't fit me. And I got into a job in the same corporation in a much more organic place, which was road safety and uh, going out in the community and reducing auto uh, crashes and harm in society. And I loved the job. So I had been in that corporate job for 13 years and around 35 38 is where all of a sudden the the company offered a buyout to all the employees. They needed 850 people out of 6,000 to leave this position. And I remember sitting there and I can remember seeing my computer screen, my cursor's down here and there's a, a dialogue box. And if I click in the dialogue box, you set in motion, you're leaving. Now you remember, I, I was really enjoying my job in road safety. So here you've got great wages, great benefits, pension, government job stability, and you love your job. And if you take the separation package, you don't have a guaranteed job at all, but it may be an eight-month severance package, nine-month severance package. And I looked at it, and this is where the that trigger happened because I looked at it going like there's two words: comfort and uncertainty. I loved my job uh, for five and a half, six and a half years in road safety, but you know what? It felt comfortable. It wasn't, I mean, it was a repeat moment, but it was still comfortable in the sense that I could do these things, but there wasn't this element of growth anymore. And the the thing with comfort I found at that point in my time was uh, comfort is what society strives for or wants us to strive towards, but comfort, we stop growing as an individual. I stopped growing. The other word was uncertainty. There's uncertainty by staying in the company with 850 people out of 6,000 leaving. Uh, They can move me wherever they want. If I leave, I don't have a job. But here's the thing. By leaving, I control my uncertainty. They don't. And I remember not one person, family, friends, co-workers, not one person supported me because I took that cursor and I clicked in the button because of 
comfort and uncertainty. And those two words just never resonated with me any longer. I walked to the edge of the cliff and everyone says, you're just making the biggest mistake of your life. And I remember I took a step off into the darkness. And I remember even my, my boss, when he received the forms, called me into his office. He said, you know, he pulled the paperwork towards himself and he said, Sam, if you decide to stay and if you want, I can reverse this. I don't want you to go. And I said, I'm sorry, I've already checked out. I have to leave. And I took the paperwork and I signed it. And what was interesting is, you know, I took this leap into the darkness, didn't have another job lined up or anything. But there were whispers of people who said, look, a co-worker said, look, if you survive, I might do this, but I got to see if you're okay. Well, after um, a month, everything, uh, the voluntary separation package was closing up and you had to make a decision, but I didn't have a job and a few others didn't. So people went back to the office. Uh, for me, at about a one and a half month point, I thought, well, it's been great to have a month and a, a half off. Um, I guess I should start thinking about where I want to work. And there were two places I thought that might be interesting. One was my university where I graduated from. I thought, you know, I think I'd like to get a job there. And the other one was working on the Olympic bid. Uh, so Vancouver hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics. I went in on a Wednesday, closing date Friday, <clears throat> three interviews later. I'm working on the Olympic bid to get the games to Vancouver. And oh my gosh, it has been one of the most amazing projects that I ever encountered in my life. I mean, I was working uh, 8.30 in the morning to 10.30 at night, seven days a week. And then when the IOC visited, we were working 4 a.m. to midnight every day and they put us up in hotels. But I, I was on adrenaline because we were fighting for something that could change the face of Canada. And it uh, was one of the most amazing projects. And then after that, shortly after that, uh, I took seven months off and just because it was exhausting. And I decided, you know what, um, SFU, nine interviews later, or sorry, nine applications. I remember my, my director at communications basically was a reference. And she said, look, you got to hire this guy. He only wanted to work for us and he's only going to work for you. And you know what, they, it, the university hired me and uh, it's been an amazing ride. And I left 21 years ago. It feels like it's been five years because I've been able to find things that really have engaged me and been purposed. Sadly, some of my colleagues who really never liked their job in the corporate world, they're maybe two years away from retirement and it's going to feel like 20 years because they're just not really enjoying it. And I'm just like, you know, and, and I respect it. I mean, uh, and, and you know what, Hey, if somebody is really enjoying the corporate side, totally great. You got to do what's right for you. But I just know that there's a lot of people out there who are wearing that 52 short and there are 42 regular and you can wear the suit, but it just doesn't fit. And I really want to help them get to a place that just resonates for them. I mean, that, that is so powerful. And, and 
Interesting, obviously, because you you know you did a, a TEDx talk as well, you know, and you, mm-hmm. you talked about that in the book, and you know, there's how many people say they have a book in them, but never quite happens. You know, how many people have that choice of click the box, don't click the box, and they don't click the box, and mm-hmm. you know, as you say, it's it's uh, it's kind of like a sliding doors moment. It's like, yeah. what if? And yeah. you took that decision to to go out. Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, can I ask, I mean, what, what's your general risk profile? Are you risk adverse? Are you, <laughs> where do you sit? Yeah. In fact, I had a conversation this morning with uh, someone uh, and I basically said, I thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty. And that scares a lot of people. But for me, it's like, no, no, that's that's the space where, uh, you know, people people can tell me what the problem is. But you know what? I'm always about it. The problem is an opportunity to a solution. And this is where, you know, I thrive in this piece called ambiguity and uncertainty. And yeah, I mean, you know, when I took the leap, there was a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, You know, when, you know, I shifted into teaching at university from student engagement or even getting into a job of student engagement, getting students to realize, you know, you've got your GPA and transcripts, but you know, life is more than that. And employers are looking for these other set of skills. And I wound up shifting and changing an entire environment in the university, but I did, I'm not, but that's not my background, but it was more of like, here's what the problem is. I need to know what the solution is and working towards a solution. And that's becoming an author. Um, I'm a, I'm a hobby woodworker. Again, all of these things just, uh, I, I go into it saying, okay, Here's an opportunity. There's a problem here. How can I come to a solution to this? And uh, if I can't find the solution myself, hey, I'll reach out to the people around me to say, what's your thoughts on this? Or, and then, you know, even if I have to collaborate, I will. But I thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty. I love the space. And when I worked on the Olympic bid, there wasn't a set platform. Like we literally went in there to write what we were going to do. And I was doing all the community consultation. And I just remember there was no material. There was no plan in place. I got to build it all. And I had to do, you know, 20 open houses in 32 days, right from scratch. But that's the part that just, you know, as you said, fire in the belly, it was more like, I know what needs to be done. And here's an opportunity and I have to do this. I think the other part of it is, you know, understanding um, what's the worst case scenario in the situation. I, I try to understand what's the worst case scenario. I never shoot for that, but I try to understand where my feet might land if everything fails or if there's a huge setback, where are things going to land? But I think people are afraid because it's almost like you see the darkness and you're trying to feel around for, you know, is there a footing? I try to find that footing as well as at the same time, try to see where I can move forward. And that's, I like that. Cause I mean, I was going to ask me, well, two things, I suppose, first of all, was one, would you see yourself as, are you, are you typically pain-based or pleasure-based? I mean, what's your, what's your main focus? Cause you, there's a very mixed message there. As you say, it's almost, mm-hmm. it's almost, you know, driven by the pain, but inspired by the, the, the pleasure, right? I, I don't yeah. know if words in your mouth, but how do you say? No, no. I think you've just said it exactly. The point is, um, I don't want things easy. Like, in other words, if it's easy and straightforward, it's probably not meant for me. But the pain that I go through 
provides that pleasure at the end. I mean, when I wrote my book about my journey to India to find my ancestral roots, all I had was a faded photograph and very little information and people all around saying, you're wasting your time, you're not gonna find it, what's the point? Um, and you know, the, the struggle is, you know, the more, the more difficult the struggle, the sweeter the prize is at the end. I mean, if the, the journey to India for the first time was as simple as get off a plane, get into a, an ambassador car or a train and get to a place near the village and then maybe find the house, it wasn't, it, 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 there's no, there's no um, interest in, in me on something that simple. I mean, I'll do it if, if it was that straightforward, but I probably wouldn't have written a book about it the, here. You know, it, it was searching for a needle in a haystack, but we didn't even know where the haystack was. But, you know, just the fact that I found my grandfather's house with the faded photograph and very little information, like, I mean, like th the pain was there. There's the pleasure at the end. And I, I live by this one motto. I've got a few that I live by, but one motto that I live by is obstacles are the necessary bricks on a road to success. I never fear the obstacles. I embrace the obstacles because that is part of that journey. And we can't fear the obstacles. Uh, you know, realize that those obstacles are, are placed there for a reason to help us accomplish and achieve where we need to go. And that is so powerful, right? To actually, mm -hmm. you know, as you say, embrace the, the pain, the problems, whatever else, and saying, yeah, this is... You know, I mean, there's, there's an expression I love, actually. It's, I mean, it is from, you know, really from great darkness comes great light. You know, it yeah. is that, you know, you, you see one and, you know, um, people shy away from it and saying, no, if you can, if you can sit there and if you can get through it, that's, that's a point of great revelation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Talk to us about this, you know, your book and, and you know, setting off on, on the, you know, with the photograph. Yeah. That's, that's spectacular, really. It's great fun. Well, and see, I'm a British-born Canadian with parents from Fiji and grandparents from India, and you're confused. And, well, <laughs> to, well, so totally because it's like people will come and say, "What part of India are you from?" And I'm like, "Well, I was born in England, raised in Canada." And then they're like, "No, no, no, your parents. What part of India?" And I said, "Well, they're from Fiji." And they're like, "Are you Indian?" And I'm like, "Well, my grandfather's come from India." And then other people who say, "Wait, you're not Indian. You're Canadian. Whatever that may be." And I just remember, sorry, well, I, would say, I was going to say, before we started as well, I would talk to you about you being in a pipe band, an Irish pipe band of all things. <laughs> it's, like, this is, it's like, here we have a, we have a, like a, a beans company that makes beans. It's called Heinz 57. And yeah. you know, it's kind of going, how many varieties are you? That's brilliant. I love it. I love it. Well, well, and that's the part that was really fascinating about this journey, because really all I had was um, this faded photograph in the back of the book here. Mm. And that's it. And uh, very little information. And But it was also a journey to find myself at the same time. And that's why the book is called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. Because over time, it was more like I started saying, okay, but I wanted to know more about my own personal identity as a you know British-born Canadian, parents from Fiji and ancestral roots in India. But I was really removed from India because you know we were generational, few generations away from India. But you you grow up in that environment, and you know you start uh, 
saying, okay, so there are some Indian um, aspects to my nature and my cultural upbringing, my ethnicity. But uh, I said to myself in 2004, well, 2003, I said, you know, I'd really like to go to India for the very first time. And, you know, prepared for it, uh, tried to do research on where this village was. We have an idea approximately where it was in, in the northern part of India, in Punjab, but we didn't have a lot of information about this. And it was, again, that struggle, because the more people I asked who, like the name of the village is Chadodi, it's five or six miles away from our post office. My father said he used to send letters to the post office, which was a, a place called Garshankar, which is a town. And it sits in a district of Hoshiarpur, which is one of the districts in Punjab. And I remember said, talking to people from Hoshiarpur or people who knew Garshankar, and I said, you know, the name Chadodi. And they were like, nope, never heard of it. Uh, I think the name is different uh, than what you think it is. And a day before I left on this journey to India, my step cousin in Fiji said, look, I went to India. I went to Garshankar, but I, didn't find the, I did not find the village. But the name of the village is Janodi. So I thought Chadodi, Janodi, it's... Through the years, maybe it was just said in a different way. And, you know, I found a place six miles from Garshankar called Jandoli. And it sounds, Chadori Jandoli, it sounds very similar. And I remember going on this journey to Jandoli because we found where that was. And it was disheartening because it was the wrong village. And, you know, you, you build all this anticipation within you, but... Equally at the same time, all of a sudden, it just is wiped away. And this is where I say, instead of just, you know, giving up, and I'll explain the other part of that journey was finding self. But instead of just giving up, the next day I told the driver, forget what everyone has said. Let's just get to Garshankar and let's just talk to people. And eventually, one person said, oh, okay, no, I've heard of Chadori. It's six miles up the road this way which we were in the wrong direction the day before. And we got to this place, an archway, and this old man sitting right by the archway. And it was interesting because I looked at him and, you know, I'm looking at this picture, which is, you know, like just totally faded. You could barely make people out. And this gentleman who's like 80 years old, sitting there with no glasses on, looks at the picture and says, well, I think the guy in the back looks like so-and-so. The house isn't this, they look like that, but you know, and he gets into our vehicle and he drives us to a house and people come out and this one lady sees the picture and she goes, that's me, who are you? And so I found my grandfather's house and it's my grandfather's brother's family that was in that house. And uh, that's how close this was. And, you know, so for me, it was, you know, that, that struggle, but the prize was amazing because what I, I went there with this anticipation on this journey and I took Ziploc bags in my pocket because I said, if I was successful in finding the village, I want to go out into the fields and I want to scoop up dirt and I want to bring that home to my family, to my father, where his father lived. And I was able to do that. I was able to bring back dirt for him. Uh, and it was funny because it's like, well, what did you get from India? It's like, he, well, I got dirt, you know. Um, and, you know, but it's so important because, you know, I, I hold on to the dirt as well uh, from our village. It's in this little curio box here. Uh, it reminds us of our ancestral roots. Now, 
I talked about another success, which was the first was to find the village. The second part was to find myself. And what I found was I, a moment before I was to visit the Golden Temple, I just suddenly woke up at 4 a.m. Because I went to India searching for my Indian roots. I was always Indian. And what I found was that in um, Indian culture or, or um, our cuisine, there's this what we call a tali, and it's a platter with segmented dishes. So I'm British, Canadian, Indian, Fijian. So I'm always segmenting myself and I'm running with the crowd that makes the most sense for that moment. But by going to India, this was the other part, was I realized I'm not a tali, I'm kichari. And what kichari is, is this rice dish, which is a blend of rice and vegetables and uh, spices and ghee. And all of this comes together to create a beautiful meal. So I realized instead of segmenting myself, I'm, a, I'm kichari, which is this dish, which is a mixture of flavors. It's like making an omelet or a bubble and squeak. It's, it's like you're, you're a blend of things. And it reminded me to stop segmenting myself and embrace everything about me uh, in that way. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why Lost and Found. So the village was lost, but I also felt I was lost and found, seeking the past and finding myself. So even if I didn't find the village, I think that that was also a part that was really important was about this identity piece that I was able to capture. Wow, I mean that's yeah, fantastic. Uh, you know, to to actually find that. I mean, if I've done the math right, I mean this is all like you're about thirty eight, something like that. So, if I oh, uh, back in two thousand four, yeah, 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 about uh, yeah, it was probably around forty, uh, thirty eight, mm. forty years old. Yeah, so interesting. I, I mean, I just suppose you know, if it's the corporate world, you'd laugh when you were thirty five ish, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, it's actually going finding your roots. It's, there's been a huge sort of transition phase there, if you like, of you know, yeah. finding finding yourself literally. You know, it's it's, uh, it's statementably yeah. obvious. That's what's on the book. You know, yeah. Um, what did you learn from that, Sam? Yeah, just the fact that um, you know, I think what we need to do is embrace all components of our life and not mm-hmm. segment ourselves. And the fact that we are made up of of so many different components. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people I come across feel lost either uh, academically, career-wise, or even life-wise. And, you know, what it does is it it's a story to say, you know, I was very fortunate. I was able to find my ancestral roots and, you know, equally maybe even find myself. You know, I was talking to somebody just recently who read my book and she said, when I saw the part that you found your village, she said, I literally fell on my knees and, and just sobbed because, you know, she's got a... a multiple background as well. Um, And she just said, I don't think there's ever a chance that I will ever be able to find, you know, my roots because I, I just, we have very, even less information. And I said, but the important thing is, uh, you know, maybe down the road to travel to that place, to just experience it. And, you know, to uh, even if it's to find yourself and how you can associate and relate to that place, uh, I think is equally important as just even trying to find that flag in the sand where you're like, okay, this is my village. This is my home. Uh, you know, I look at it this way. If it was not successful, just the fact that I was in the Punjab and that I was relatively close to my village, I think 
would have been a small victory because, you know, I, it's something I said I wanted to do. I ventured out and it, it, it's, it's not an absolute of all or nothing, but I think while you're on the journey, it's important to be reflective. It's important to start thinking about things, but what do you take away? And if I may, I'm just going to read you this one. Uh, it's such an important quote that I put in my book uh, that I think is very, uh, it captures the true essence of the journey. Not just this, but in, in uh, any time I've traveled, it, travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. And that was by Anthony Bourdain. But I just think it really captured the essence of the journey. And I think it, it also reminded me, uh, and to that purpose piece you were talking about, is it really helped me to define the difference between a tourist and a traveler. Because a tourist wants to see things, but not experience. So the big bus tour, or, you know, if you're going to India, yeah, show me the Taj Mahal and show me these other parts, but I'm not interested in seeing the poverty or the slums. Whereas a traveler says, I need to experience the whole picture. So rather than just seeing, I want to experience. Again, there's nothing wrong with being a tourist. I mean, uh, because that's the way some people really appreciate and enjoy traveling. And, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I just know for me, it made me and helped me realize that, no, no, I'm a traveler. Like I want to walk the streets. I want to uh, eat the street foods. I want to meet people. Uh, I want to hear their stories. And, uh, you know, so I really need to be that traveler. And I think that Anthony Bourdain quote really captures the essence of, of what I you know, it, it becomes foundational for me for when I travel. And on that travel, I mean, and, and the different sort of backgrounds, I suppose, you know, that, that's connected to you. Is there any particular, is there any particular place maybe that actually mm -hmm. you kind of always just felt home? You felt <laughs> a deep connection to? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because uh, my aunt still lives in Southampton in England. And every time I go there, again, it's like another home for me. And I venture to uh, the house I was born in, uh, you know, which is uh, along that same corridor. Uh, I don't know. It's really interesting in that sense, because uh, when I travel, I build relationships. And all of a sudden, it's like you find connectedness to a place. And it's been so many places around the world that I've been that there's a connectedness. And part of it is being open to that experience. I mean, I remember... I've been to the uh, Middle East numerous times. And I remember the first time I went to the Middle East uh, for work, uh, I landed in Kuwait and Kuwait sits right next to Iraq. Iraq is going through, you know, at that point in time, major upheaval. And I just remember a lot of people saying, you are going to such a dangerous place. And, uh, you know, the whole Middle East area is very dangerous. And I was like, but I, I went. And I just remember when I came back, people said, you know, so what was it like? Like, how dangerous was it? I said, oh, my gosh, it is extremely dangerous. And they're like, really, what did you see? And I said, yeah, just trying to cross the road was so dangerous. It's like trying to cross the road in India. It's so difficult. And they were like, no, I mean, what about terrorism? What about explode? I said, no, no, I felt safer in those countries than in many places I've traveled around the world. 
And they're like, yeah, yeah, but you look like you fit in. I said, no, no, even my Canadian friends would walk around the streets at midnight and not even feel worried. Now, there is one dangerous thing about the Middle East, extremely dangerous, and you have to be very cautious. And that happened in Bahrain, which was, you know, uh, I made, uh, so after the conference finished, one of the conference people that live in Bahrain said, uh, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you around to Bahrain to show you around on a Friday because I was leaving on Saturday. And I said, oh, so she came on Friday and she goes, Sam, I'm sorry, but plans have changed. And I said, uh, oh, no worries. I mean, if you have to go, I mean, I'll, I'll wander around the souk and uh, the marketplace. And she said, no, no, no. My mom says I have to bring you home for lunch. If you ever sit across Bahraini home hospitality, the mother sits across from you. She is going to feed you until you cannot anymore. That's the dangerous part is eat slowly. And when she sits there and smiles, um, always be very polite, but equally at the same time, just eat slowly because that's the dangerous part. The hospitality was unbelievable, remarkable. The food was amazing, but she was going to feed me till I died. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? I mean, that's a spectacular Hospitality and God forbid, as you say, if you finish too quickly, they'll feed you more. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you never, never. It's it's a good piece of advice. If you ever travel to any um, Asian household, South Asian household, or Middle Eastern, eat slow. Oh, I love it! I love it. It's and I love that. I mean, you just obviously you you you, you seem to get the thrill from that experience, from that connecting to other people, and. Yeah. You know, and as you say, it's it's the difference between seeing and experiencing, which is mm -hmm. which is quite remarkable in itself. Oh, you know? totally. And there's so, so few people get that in general, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. even what you were saying, you know, it's not necessarily the destination, it's the journey on the way, which which yeah. is sort of what I picked out of that quote, really, or that, that yeah. sort of poem. Yeah, no, no. The journey is so critical. And whether that's traveling, uh, academics, life, career, doesn't matter. But um I always tell people to stop focusing on that final destination because it just doesn't exist. It's about the journey. Admire and respect the view that's there. Uh, there are so many tremendous, ex tremendously extraordinary experiences around us, but we are on autopilot that we forget that. And that emerged out of my first uh, TEDx speech I did on uh, storytelling, Discover the Extraordinary in the Ordinary, where we forget about the... Uh, the things that are happening in life around us that are are brilliant, but we are just so focused on, you know, uh, the everyday. And uh, so what I wrote is, uh, as I mentioned, I like acronyms. So the acronym I use for storytelling and discovering that extraordinary in the ordinary is uh, CARPE. So I've, I had to break it down for my TEDx speech. And I said, CARPE stands for curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspective, and experience. I go through life with a curious nature. Um, so for example, you know, I'll see something and I'll stop. And I appreciate it for more than what it is. There's something about this, but the only way to realize it is through the R, which is reflection and adding purpose and meaning to this. And the fact is we all have our own perspectives and it's about embracing your perspectives to see what does it mean to you. And then finally, cataloging it as an experience is the E, because if you don't catalog the experience or the story, your story dies an untimely death. And if I may, I'll just give you a quick example of how you can live that extraordinary out of the ordinary. So for example, I carry with me puzzle pieces. And, you know, I give people 
puzzle pieces. And it's been about 5,000 to date. But what happens with the puzzle pieces, if I was to give you one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, what can you do with one piece? Not much, because it's one piece. This is what people feel like. They feel like that single piece, they're not sure where they fit in, or they're like, but what's the bigger picture? Well, instead of this single piece, I always tell people, focus on the satchel. If I give you a piece of my jigsaw puzzle, do you realize the significance of this is my puzzle is permanently incomplete without you? Do you realize how important you are to me? And all of a sudden, I see a transformation on their face because they're suddenly like, wow, like, I didn't even realize that. The important part about that puzzle piece is I've heard from people who have said, it's taped to my mirror. Every morning I wake up, it reminds me someone said I was important. It's traveled around the world in backpacks. It's in little curio boxes that are very special to them in wallets. And when I see them at events, they pull it out to remind people to, to say, you know what, you're still with me. Or you get that frantic person at the end who comes up saying, Sam, I lost the jigsaw puzzle piece. I feel disconnected. I need another one. But this is an example of how something as simple and ordinary as a piece of a jigsaw puzzle has now become extraordinary. Curiosity stopped me. So I saw a jigsaw puzzle piece. It stopped me. There's the curiosity. I appreciated the jigsaw puzzle and the jigsaw puzzle pieces for more than what it was. But I had to reflect to find the purpose and meaning. And my perspectives was about connectedness and the importance of connecting and then cataloging it as an experience. And all of a sudden, it just became an entire uh, part of, I guess, what I've been doing for years now is giving out puzzle pieces, but with this understanding that how important people are to me. And it's a reminder that uh, it's not just one directional where you're that single piece. No, no, I need you to be a part of my life. That's great. It's great analogy. As you say, it all makes up to be the bigger picture, the bigger, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe the bigger picture, maybe the goal, maybe not. Who knows? It's, mm-hmm. Maybe it's, well, yep. it's exactly that. In terms of, well, a couple of things first off. I, I mean, talk to me about mini Sam. What was mm-hmm. Sam like as a young fella? What, what yeah. would we have been looking at? You're looking at an individual who just uh, was fumbling around in the dark, um, you know, trying to figure out what's the direction to go. I mean, in high school, counselors said, Sam, I don't think you're cut out for post-secondary education. It wasn't the marks. It was like I was awkward, shy, and quiet. He says, you may want to rethink it. And I still remember uh, I had already submitted one application to a college, and I contemplated pulling that application. And I thought, nah, they're not going to take me because this person said I shouldn't be going to college. I think they'll get it and I don't have to embarrass myself. But the college contacted me with a letter and said, congratulations, you made it. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you in September. And I was like, oh, now what do I do? Okay, I'll go. So I went. And for the first semester, I felt like an imposter because someone said I shouldn't be there. Now, was I the brilliant student? No. Was I the worst? No. But I was somewhere in the middle. And I thought, okay, let me do another term. And then I transferred to university. And I remember sitting at graduation saying, wow, I can't believe how wrong you were. But also at graduation, uh, you know, I graduated with a degree in business and political science. And I'm thinking, wow, what a great combination. Who's lucky to get me? And I walked across the stage 
And as I walked off the stage, this giant virtual door slammed behind me. Everything familiar to me was behind that door. The classes I took, the schedule I would make, my friends, and just the familiarity of that environment was behind that door. And I sat down and I said, okay, I guess I have to now, you know, go look for a job, you know, but again, I wasn't sure, but that's the, the way we would do it. Now, back then you have to type letters or handwrite letters, mail it or hand deliver it. And I remember I sent out about nine letters and thinking, okay, who's lucky to get me? Well, a letter arrived two weeks later. Sorry, we don't have a job for you, but good luck. And I was like, okay, but you know what? That's too bad for you, but I've got, you know, eight more letters out there. I'm going to do three more letters. So I was sending them out and letters would, the more letters I sent out, the more letters came back saying, we don't have a job for you. We're not sure what you're looking for. Good luck in your search. And I love the, we're going to keep your resume on file for six months. And if suitable opportunity comes up, we'll uh, let you know, which meant it's going right into the bin. Well, over a short period of time, I, I got 86 rejection letters and I still hold on to them. That's 86 rejection letters. Now, every single letter, I will tell you, was a nail in my coffin of self-confidence because it wasn't a matter of who's lucky to get me. Is it? It's now, am I lucky to get a job? And what I remember is finally I got my first job. And my first job was actually government work. It was entry level. It was mopping floors and emptying rubbish bins in a hospital as a janitor. But when I went into that job, instead of looking at it as I got a degree on my wall and oh, I'm doing this job, no, what am I going to learn? So my father said, so three valuable lessons that carries me to who I am today. First lesson, my father said, I don't care what you do for a living. You better do the best job possible because your reputation is on the line. And you know what? There was no floor cleaner than at the end of my shift and no rubbish bin left full. Second valuable lesson that carries me to who I am today. There were times I got on the elevator with nurses, doctors, and administrators. Not every time, but there were times and incidents where I would just be ignored because you're a janitor. We have nothing in common. We are up here. You are down here. It made me realize everybody has a story and I'm not going to ignore people. This is why I talk to everybody because I never want them to feel that, that I had to endure. And the third valuable lesson is rather than an absolute of poor me, I have a degree on my wall. I said to myself, I'm going to be open to this experience and I'm going to embrace opportunity. But what am I going to learn as a result of this? And then I started coming up with these life lessons that carries me to who I am today. But the interesting thing about it is now these letters, I actually embrace these letters because if one of those letters would have materialized, there's a very good chance I wouldn't be here talking to you today because my life would have gone in a different trajectory. And the second part I think that's really important about those letters is many of these companies no longer exist. I outlasted them. So it's about resilience and people will outlast. And we just have to remember that, you know, rather than just going into this grind, let's start looking at what you're doing and, okay, what are you going to learn from this? If you're not happy, how do we move forward from this and helping people move along in life? Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting a little sense. I mean, do you like to be understated? Do you, do you like to be maybe slightly misunderstood or 
maybe not sort of does that make sense yeah no it it does i mean i think it's more of like you know i think eventually your personal brand uh grows and your personal brand uh becomes your character and reputation and as a result of that i think what happens is you're no longer that much of a secret but part of it is in the past a lot of times people didn't really know who i was or why they might be coming to see me. Someone just said, you better go see him. Or if I'm speaking at an event, uh, you know, I like, I like to have it where maybe the introduction is subdued so that I could then try to build in those experiences versus someone just telling them, oh, this is what he's accomplished or done. Um, so it's not so much an understated piece. I think it's more of, you know, it's no longer as uh, in my circle, I guess you could say it's hidden. But equally at the same time, I don't, I never want to be this person that is seen as too good or unapproachable, because I think that's a danger that can happen is if you think of yourself in that sense or category. Uh, so not so much understated, but I just think I, I want to make sure I'm accessible and available to whoever needs to speak. And in terms of, I mean, for where you are today, I mean, do you, do you see yourself as being where you're supposed to be. Does that make sense in your journey and, yep. and, and who you are, your soul, if you like? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, having those five core elements that have, that have changed over time, but where they are presently, uh, I think it really resonates that what I'm doing makes sense. And what I'm doing uh, is there to help others or uh, to make some level of an impact uh, you know, it's not so much a, what I would call a legacy piece, but uh, it's just about being present for people and uh, that level of impact. Um, one thing I spoke about in my, my TEDx conference was, a, again, a bit of a shift in idea in the first TEDx I spoke at was, <clears throat> I think I had this, you know, general idea that I want to change the world. Don't know how, don't know when, but I want to change the world. And what I found is, the world is very complicated. Uh, the world is, you know, very diverse. And the, the more I got trying to change the world, the more frustrated I became. And I remember there was this uh, organization I was, I was working with uh, that offered a hand up, not a handout. It was helping people get back on their feet. And I helped a couple who were really, you know, having a difficult time. Neither of them were working. They lived in a, in a small bachelor unit. Their daughter slept on the floor. And he said, you know, what we're feeling is our world has collapsed. Well, what I did was my job was not there to rescue him or her. My job was not to, uh, you know, alter their life in, in a way that I saw it to be. But I just, we had a conversation and I, wound up doing their resumes and dropping it off, but never saw them again. Five years later, I saw the guy at a, one of the places I was on the board. He comes running and I saw him and I was like, oh, and he saw me and he comes and he gives me this big hug. And he said, Sam, after you left, he and his wife sat there and he said, we suddenly realized we were waiting for someone to rescue us, but you reminded us that we have to rescue ourselves, supported by you, but we rescued ourselves. And he got a contract and he was now bidding on another contract, which he got, but it's what he said. He said, everything shifted and changed. And 
we moved and we're now, you know, making money and uh, having a lifestyle and life. My daughter's going to school. She's doing very well. And he said, our world has come back together. And it suddenly made me realize that I was doing this all wrong in the past. I'm trying to change the world through my eyes. And that's difficult and complicated and can't be done. But by being there for people and supporting their journey, I'm not changing their lives in the direction I think it should go. But if they see the world differently because I was part of it, you've changed the world. So change the world through the eyes of the people that you support and help because they see the world differently because of your presence there. You've changed the world because they see it differently now. And that loops back quite nicely because, I mean, you talk about almost or earlier, it's almost, almost, you know, perception of truth. You know, it's like it's... Yeah. Uh, it's your truth, but it doesn't mean it's the truth or anyone else's truth, right? You know, so it's 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 relative, it's perspective. Yeah, totally. And how do you get that across then in terms of, you know, because you talk, I mean, it's, well, from, from the story you're saying with the CV, it's, you know, it's support, not, is it support, not guide? Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is almost the difference between a coach and a mentor, right? You know, a coach sits with yeah. you and said, where do you want to go today? And a mentor says, I've been there. <laughs> What would you like to know? You know, is that is that where you sort of see yourself more? Yeah, it, it's more really trying to um, understand where this person is in life. And equally, at the same time, there could be a shift. Uh, something may have happened where now instead of mentorship, it's now coaching and, and you're you're helping them discover a new pathway and things. So I, I totally agree with that is that, you know, you're you're at times, you know, inquiring at other times guiding and supporting it just I find that uh, it's very organic when we have a conversation I'm not a, I don't have a structure when it comes to these conversations it oftentimes just starts with what would you like to talk about today and I let them guide it and then we fill in the blanks as we go along no it's, I mean a blank page is a great place to start right you know it's uh, it's all the difference what are you capable of Sam do you know what I'm capable of, I think uh, caring, in other words, um, not being a bystander in life, uh, just something needs to be done, uh, roll up my sleeves, whether it's to help a community, whether it's to help an individual, um, you know, I think that I'm capable of trying to help people see the greatness that lies within them, that they may not be able to see. And, uh, you know, being a champion and enabler to say, okay, you know, how do we help you realize this? And activator igniter is that, you know, igniting them to go in a direction that uh, that they really would like to go. So I think that's what I'm capable of is, is really supporting, guiding, um, helping people realize their, their pathway. And if, you know, they slip and fall along the way, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that it's it's a failure, it's a setback, but okay, let's, how do we pick ourselves off, dust ourselves off, learn from the experience? How do we emerge stronger? And uh, yeah, just being a champion for them. That's what I'm capable of. Uh, and I mean, you mentioned earlier about purpose, I suppose, being, you know, and really that's sort of a, what fire in the belly almost means for you. And that purpose, I mean, has that changed through time and where you're at today? I mean, do you find your purpose is saved, you know, in that sort of level of service and championing people? Is that yeah. stayed common? You know, it's it stayed 
consistent, but it's gotten stronger over the years. Mm. Um, the more injustices I see or the more um, it just reinforces when I'm, I hear from someone saying, oh, I, you know, I got this position or, you know, thanks uh, for the support you gave me back then. Uh, you know, you were there when I needed you. Uh, to me, that's uh, that's important for me is just being able to see where that where the the journey goes for these individuals. No, it makes a lot of sense. I kind of have this. It's a it's a different question than I would normally give. But is there somebody sure. that particularly believed in you, or is there somebody that particularly stood out and, and helped you to shine? Mm-hmm. I don't know why that question's come into my mind, but things happen for a reason. No, and I think what's interesting is people said, look, Sam, you mentor so many people in life. Who's your mentor? Actually, it's self-mentorship. Um, I don't have a mentor. And I think uh, blogging and writing has been an avenue for me. And I've been writing for many years, but never published for the longest time. But I think that's how I self-mentored myself, um, gave me the, and looking at this, uh, capturing those experiences that I had, um, so that I was able to learn from it because I took the time to really write about it. And by writing, you actually re-experience everything. So for me, that's uh, it's not in a cocky way to say, oh, it's just me. It's just, I learned the most from myself. Um, But it's a matter of being reflective and making sure that you capture really the essence of, of who you are and learn from that. And generally, I mean, how, how are you with success? How does it go, go down with you? Yeah. I mean, some people may not see me as a success because maybe I'm not making six figures, uh, eight figures, uh, seven figures a year. Uh, but success to me is, um, again, hearing the stories from people. Uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my life with regards to not uh, the routine of my days, but the fact that, uh, you know, I'm compensated well enough that, I can concentrate on the level of impact I would like to make with individuals in their lives. Um, So success to me is being present and being there for people as opposed to how much money do I make? I, I mean, even this morning, I got a call from someone who said, you know, I think what's really important is we, you know, we're building out of a course and a program. What I would really like is if, you know, we could get you as a, as a lecturer but Sam, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of funding here uh, for this. And uh, I'm like, you know, the, the remuneration is, it's there, but that's not the primary reason I do this. Mm-hmm. Um, the messaging is really important because you never know where the messaging is going to go, who it's going to hit or impact, or the perspectives that that person then moves forward on, or where it's going to guide you. I mean, uh, a lot of the the things that I get to do in life is because someone saw me speak at an event and they're like, you know, we need to get him here. And then now you're, you're gaining the uh, traction where it's, it's needed. But, you know, I think I, I always say, cause I asked this question of my students in class, what are you motivated by? And obviously many of them will say money. And I said, okay. And we do an exercise and I say, money is not a motivator. Money is a result of your motivation. Um, you know, They want to be an investment banker because they make lots of money. I said, but the great investment bankers are not doing it because they make money. I mean, that's the byproduct of it. 
They're doing it because they want to earn money for their clients. And, you know, they, they enjoy the fact that they're helping their clients achieve a massive goal. Um, you know, and when you put money as your motivator, it's a short term. It's like the passion piece, but not the purpose piece. When you find what really resonates, all of a sudden money happens because of the fact that you're authentic and genuine and people can see what you're accomplishing. It's so true, isn't it? It's that, and I love that, you know, you, you keep coming back to it is, you know, it's the motivation versus inspiration. It's the, you mm -hmm. know, passes, passion versus purpose. You know, it's that, yeah. it's that one has, I suppose, continuous power. One is a firework. It's a quick bang and gone. You know, it's that, yeah. you know, which do you want, you know, that long term. You mentioned briefly legacy earlier. I mean, what, what sort of legacy do you see and, and you know, what could, What's your aspirations, yeah. I suppose? I think the only thing I would say on that is that um, I don't ever want to be seen as a bystander in life. Um, you know, I, I'm there to, uh, again, see the greatness. I, I think the best way that I can describe my legacy would be, you know, with the so many people that I've been able to engage and help in life and career. Uh, so, for example, in the, the best way I can give a picture of this is if you ever watch the Olympic Games, uh, Winter Olympic Games, and you see ice hockey, and let's say if Team Canada wins the gold medal, the players storm off the bench and they're celebrating, but the coach never receives a gold medal. But they stand in the back with their arms folded, but with this, you know, grin on their face going like, job well done, like we really accomplished something great here. I think that's the best way to describe a legacy piece for me is the fact that I don't need the praise. I'm not here to uh, receive honors and uh, those sorts of things. Uh, just the satisfaction that I was not a bystander in life and just the way that I've been able to be present in people's journeys. Uh, that, that to me is a bit my, what I would call like a legacy if that's the case. Mm, that makes sense. Is there any particular moments that I mean really stand out for you in your journey you know proud moments or super significant moments you know sort of real game changers if you like yeah I mean and I write about that in my book about my travels to India is the fact that in uh, February 10th 1972 <clears throat> nine and a half years old uh, my I came home from school and my aunt was there and before she made a cup of tea for me she said oh and your dad had an accident and I still remember the, the visualization of that for me at nine and a half is his car rolls into a ditch, the door opens and he walked home. Actually, he had an industrial accident and he became a paraplegic that day and never walked again. He's still with us. But uh, what was significant about it is the fact that, well, at nine, I mean, you just try to say the word paraplegia, let, let alone know what it means. Um, it made me realize maybe not as clear at nine years old or nine and a half years old, but it has permeated my life is the fact that there are no guarantees in life. And it's not a morbid thought that today's my last day, but rather the fact that I have an opportunity to add richness to this day. And I choose to do the extraordinary out of the ordinary just because what if it is my last day? Do I want to be sitting in a coffee shop talking ill about someone or saying I hate my job? Or instead, is it about having these meaningful conversations? And I mean, already I've had two this morning prior to this where, you know, we had enlightening conversations, which made me feel really great of 
how I can, how I've supported people or uh, receiving emails from people saying, you know, uh, I really want to see you. I haven't caught up in a while. And can we meet up? Um, it reminds me that every single moment I, when I wake up to when I go to bed, I have a choice to make and I choose to add richness to my life, uh, to my day, because, you know, at the end of it all, at least I can say, you know what, I, I really had some engaging experiences in my life that I really truly enjoyed um, as opposed to dwelling on the challenges. And there are challenges and I'm not exempt from these challenges, but uh, it's how we approach the challenges to say, you know, I'm building resilience in this is a reality and I have to focus on it and it is what it is, but I'm not going to let it get me. Um, I, I may not be able to control the situation, but I can control how I'm going to react to the situation. And that's the journey that I take. Mm. I mean, to have that conscious choice is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, I mean, I use the term lightly, but I suppose heroes or inspirational people in your life that, you know, is there anyone that particularly stands out for you? Well, uh, I mean, my father for sure, because of what he endured and, uh, you know, as going through life, uh, you know, he's, like I said, still with us, challenges, but equally, that's one. Um, also, you know, it's it's not so much, you know, I would say, you know, you go to those signature heroes and things. Uh, you know, there's a couple of people that I would say that, you know, I think I'd really like to have a conversation with them. I mean, Nelson Mandela, I mean, someone who endured a lot of hardship in life how did you persevere and not give up like to me that's a story that i think is uh is so compelling because you are faced with so many challenges and uh persecution but yet you persevered um you know so that's that's the type of piece that i like to see is learning about these stories of people and how they uh persevere through hardships even um, you know, those are important pieces. No, as you say, I mean, it's, it is that sort of amazing. I mean, by all, you know, he, he should have, he should have come out of prison, a very angry man, but indeed yeah. the reflection, but talk to me, you, you mentioned earlier about the difficult monk. What does that mean mm -hmm. to you? The difficult monk means don't come to me looking for the answers. Cause I'm not going to tell you the answers, but what I'm going to do is help you discover the monk that lies within you. Um, because I think it's so easy. And this is where I think people are so focused on telling that uh, I don't want to tell people what to do. I think there's enough people there, but the difficult monk is, I'm not going to make it easy for you, but I'm going to ask you questions. The answers lie within you. Let's start pulling these answers out. I find that fascinating because, I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, you don't you don't tell a story, you share a story, you know, and that's, I suppose, almost from the from the mm -hmm. mum perspective, right? You know, it's, you know, I'm sharing something with yeah. you. And when we share, we're sharing is caring, as my kids keep telling me, apparently. <laughs> they keep reciting that. You know, it's it's really quite quite something. And in terms then, well, I suppose, what's, what's, a, what's a guilty pleasure for you, Sam? I mean, when it all comes down, what's, what does Sam like to do? Yeah, I mean, uh, woodworking is something that becomes an outlet for me because uh, 
um, for me, it's like I, I really enjoy, and my father and I, we've uh, built furniture together, even though he's had that disability, we built furniture together. He taught me plumbing, electrical, and woodworking, but I find I find so much pleasure in just woodworking. Um, and I think it's an outlet because when you have two hours of mundane sanding using an orbit sander, you contemplate about life. And uh, I think for me, but the brilliance of what you create is also amazing once it's all finished. And, uh, you know, whether it's a table, a shelf, a charcuterie board, a cutting board, uh, there's a word in our language, which is, um, it's, it's an interesting word because the word is piar, P-Y-A-A-R. And what it means is this love, but the love of appreciation, it comes from a genuine place within you. And when I do my woodworking, much like when I meet with people, it's everything is so genuine from an authentic place. Uh, anything I create using my hands for woodworking is done with biad. It's done from a place that I really like. And when I'm not here to sell my items at an uh, at a inflated price, literally it's covering my costs and a bit of the labor, but people know that, you know what, I get an authentic and original Sam Thiara that I can have in my house as a reminder of this person. And I thought, oh, okay, so that's, that's a guilty pleasure. It's um, uh, that's something I enjoy. Uh, also hanging out with my boys, um, you know, they're, they're nine and 12 and, you know, that's a guilty pleasure because, you know, they get you to, uh, to become kids again. And, uh, you know, you get to have some fun, uh, experiences with them as well. We ever tempted to mix up the 5,000 piece jigsaw and we're working together and come up with the 5,000 piece woodworking. Well, <clears throat> I guess enough shavings are the 5,000 right there <laughs> that I have in my garage and that I have to vacuum up with the, with the dust pack. <laughs> oh, I love it. Love it. And Camille, what's, what's a bit of a favorite question for you? I mean, you know, I mean, it sounds like you're a bit of a question master, master as such, you know, and also obviously through your lecturing, uh, is there any particular questions that always stand out or do you find it uh, are a great um, litmus test, if you like? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the greatest questions is, you know, uh, what should I be doing? And, uh, you know, that's what people are asking. And, uh, you know, it's about reframing that for them to say, it's not a matter of what you should be doing, like me telling you, but what do you want to do? And let's figure this out. Uh, I think that the, it's, it's about turning that focus and that question to something that is easier for them. And I, I wrote a blog post, change a word, change your world. Uh, I've had students come in and they, they sit there and, and, I, and I think not just students, but I think a lot of people are guilty of this, which is they can tell what the problem is and they'll sit there and share, here's what the problem is. I live in the world of solutions and I, and I turn it back to them and I say, well, this is what you've told me is the problem. How, how are we going to fix this? You tell me. And uh, all of a sudden they sit there going like, oh, I said, it's easy to tell me what the problem is, but the challenge is let's come to a solution. I don't dwell in the problem. I want to know what the problem is, but let's work to a solution, you know, and I think that's important. Mm. No, absolutely. And, uh, and in terms of either downtime, thinking time for you, where, where's your go-to? I mean, what's, mm -hmm. you know, when you need that thinking time, are you, Mm -hmm. deep in the woodwork or are you out in the yeah. water what where's your go-to place 
deep in the woodwork, um, you know, uh, definitely. It's also about, um, you know, when I travel, I think I do a lot of thinking as well, um, whether it's with my family or whether it's, you know, with my best friends or cousin, or even if I travel by myself, I find that uh, I gain a huge perspective when I travel. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in the pipe band, that was enjoyable. That was an outlet. Uh, I think it's really important for people to find an outlet, something that uh, allows them to just leave the world behind and just do something that matters to them, whether it's photography, whether it's yoga, whether it's art, for me, it's woodworking, but I, I think that it's important to have an outlet. Mm. That's interesting. You know, I mean, that, that I'm getting a strong resonance of communication, connection, even with the music, it's there, even the, with sharing your woodwork, it's, it's a form of connection, it's memory with the jigsaw, it's connection, it's memory, it's, yep. you know, it's net, not networking, it's relationship building, as you say, you know, it's that whole thing, isn't it, that actually, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's sort of getting, getting stronger by the day, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think the more and more we can do this, uh, the more we we build on this, the better the world will be as far as I'm concerned, because uh, again, uh, it's about shifting perspectives. It's about, and not, not imposing perspectives, mm. but understanding perspectives and having more of that dialogue and discussion to appreciate each other's perspectives. And not to say yours is wrong, but to say, let me try to understand your perspective. And I think we need to have more of those open conversations. Mm. That's powerful. Sam, I want to be respectful for your time here. And I suppose, I mean, a couple of questions for if, if me. I mean, first of all, I mean, if you were to describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would mm -hmm. they be? Yeah, it would be um, support, communication, connectedness, conversations. I think that really does capture the essence. Uh, it really does relate to the five core elements that I suggested in the beginning of the session here, which uh, just really resonates and, and puts that, you know, fire in the belly to, to ultimately say, you know what, I don't want to be a bystander in life. And this is how I've chosen to go down a pathway, my journey. That's beautiful. So tell us where can people reach out follow you, track you down, hunt you down, stalk you, any of the above? All of those. Uh, so definitely I have a website. Uh, mm -hmm. So www.sam-thiara.com. Uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, all of those are there. Uh, I've got about 170 blog posts on a lot of these thoughts and ideas. So those are all free. You can always just tap in and uh, read the blog posts on my website. But yeah, no. And uh, if somebody wants to, you know, have a conversation through coaching and whatnot, you can reach out uh, on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that would be that would be the way to reach out. Lovely. Final thought you'd like to leave with the listeners? Yeah, I always like to end with my signature tagline. The one that I live by is everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. We are all living stories. And let's embrace the significance of that autobiography that you're writing. Uh, there are times where people will say, yeah, but my story is not as interesting or whatnot. I said, no, no. If it's an important story for you, it's, it's your autobiography and it's important to share that. So everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. Love it. Love it. 
Sam, it's been an awesome journey so far and lots more to come. So thank you so much for sharing so much here today. And uh, until the next time, Sam, uh, thank, thank you. you, Pete. And I, I appreciate you uh, sharing your questions. They were uh, enjoyable. And uh, at the same time, I, I really appreciated our conversation. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.